Turn your Bibles with me to Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1. May the Lord be merciful in helping me pick and choose a few things out of many to share with you from this short passage. I've way overdone it for the time I have, but I haven't overdone it for what my soul wanted. It's such a simple little salutation. I should be able just to explain it to you in a few seconds or a couple minutes. But it's so full of wonderful things about the Lord Jesus Christ and what He's done for us. Above and beyond just washing away our sins. We're going to come to His table and we're going to thank Him and remember and celebrate His death to put away our sins. But He's done so much more than just acquit us. Oh, we're not just acquitted. We're not just neutral before Him. He has raised us up and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And He's made us kings and priests unto our God and His Father. And I hope that I can share a few things with you from this passage that will stir up your souls and prepare you for the Lord's Supper. Let me read the salutation of the book of Revelation, which is found in verses 4 through 6, a salutation being the formal introduction of the writer and the formal identification of his audience. Following the preface, which is an introduction to a written work, a foreword being the words of a third party commending the work of a writer. But you can forget that. You've got a preface in verses 1 through 3, which is the introduction of what Revelation is, but the salutation of the people being addressed by its author is in verses 4 through 6. And that's what I want. John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace be unto you and peace from him which is and which was and which is to come and from the seven spirits which are before his throne and from Jesus Christ who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead and the prince of the kings of the earth unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and hath made us kings and priests unto God and his Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Amen. God's gift of salvation through Jesus Christ is much more than only forgiveness and pardon. And I say only forgiveness and pardon knowledgeably, and I hope that you'll hear it knowledgeably, that those two things are wonderful, to be forgiven and to be pardoned, but that would only leave us acquitted of our sins. Without the blessings and privileges the gospel describes that we actually have in addition. While deliverance from eternal torment would be an incredible blessing, there is truly much more. God decreed and Jesus Christ secured more for us than just restoring us to a position of neutrality before Him. We're above that. As we come to the Lord's table, we want to remember what Jesus Christ's death actually did for us. I want you to note the form of this salutation. 
I paused in the middle of verse 5 because there is a period there and it's a very important division. For you to fully grasp the salutation, you need to see that division. Maybe you need to put a mark there between those two sentences that make up this salutation. First, there is a threefold from showing that grace and peace which John in his salutation offered as a blessing upon these seven churches comes from three parties. Him which is and was and is to come and from the seven spirits that are before his, the seven spirits of God that are before his throne and from the Lord Jesus Christ. So the first half is a threefold from and from is there three times. And if you underline in your Bible, underline from Him, in the middle of verse 4, from the seven spirits, from Jesus Christ. And when grace and peace are coming to you from all three, it is indeed a blessing. Amen. That is an inexhaustible supply of incredible, infinite mercy, grace, and peace for your life. Right. After that period, John turns... Well, there were a few details strung in there that we're going to get to in a minute about the Lord Jesus Christ. He just couldn't list the Lord Jesus Christ without stringing a few details about Jesus Christ together. Those details being, He is the faithful witness, He is the first begotten of the dead, and He is the prince of the kings of the earth. Each one of those phrases valuable to you by way of comfort for three different needs you have. Right. Then He turns around. After having called down God's grace and peace upon them, He turns around and helps them know what they ought to return to God. And so we have the response in the second sentence, and it starts out with, Unto Him. It was from Him, from Him, from Him. Now it's unto Him that loved us. He's got to string a few more things in there about the Lord Jesus Christ before he gets to what we should give him in praise. Unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and hath made us kings and priests unto God and his Father. After saying those wonderful things about the Lord Jesus Christ, he then tells us what we ought to be giving Christ in the way of praise. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Now that's a salutation. Do you know how you start your emails? This is when you're writing in a formal one. I am fine. How are you? This is how the Bible addresses an audience. Right. And there's, a, there's great lessons here on that subject of a salutation, but I'm not going to waste our time with that. Let's just quickly look at these clauses that make up this salutation. John to the seven churches which are in Asia. This is John, the son of Zebedee, the brother of James, the beloved apostle. And he wrote seven churches, and they're listed in the 11th verse of this same chapter. And there they are summarized for you so that you don't have to turn the page to go to chapters 2 and 3 unless you want to. But there they are. The seven churches are Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Those seven churches were in a little area of what is now eastern Turkey. They weren't in Greece. They were across the, the water that is between those two nations. And it's in eastern Turkey, which was then a province of the Roman Empire called Asia. Technically called Asia Minor, because it wasn't the Asia that you're used to. 
The Asia that you're used to stretches from Europe to Alaska and from the Arctic Circle to Australia. It's the largest continent in the world, but that's not how it's used in the Bible, because in the Bible, written under and during the time of the Roman Empire, it refers to Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey and only a part of modern-day Turkey. The churches at Ephesus and Laodicea are found in other places in the Bible, in the book of Colossians, in the book of Ephesus. But the other five are only found here and mentioned here. So it's John to seven churches. And the, the number seven in the Bible is generally a number of completeness and perfection. And it's to seven particular churches. Not all churches. There were a lot more churches. There were all the churches of Achaia and Macedonia, Philippi and Corinth and other places that John doesn't even mention. Right. But he just focuses on these seven. Grace be unto you in peace. This is a variation of a typical apostolic salutation. If you go look at the epistles, they often start out with grace, mercy, and peace be multiplied to you, or something along those lines, because God's grace in our lives, and God's mercy in our lives, and God's peace in our lives are so important to our comfort, pleasantness, and prosperity in life. The apostles teach us what we should call down from heaven on one another. Grace, mercy, and peace. And so the Apostle John does here. The valediction, which is the complimentary close if you're an, an American, but the valediction, which is the op... Forgive me for sounding like that about our beloved nation and its educational system. But the opposite of a salutation is the valediction, which comes at the end of a, a letter. And that's when the Apostle Paul would sign every single one of his epistles with the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be unto you all. They sandwich their writings with grace from the Lord Jesus Christ in formal salutations and a formal valediction or complimentary close. God's grace in our lives is total necessary for us to do anything spiritually or naturally prosperous. If God withholds His grace, we are in serious trouble. And if God withholds His peace, life is filled with so many troubles that can discourage us and cause us great pain and difficulty. But grace and peace is what the apostle called down upon these seven churches. First, from. From him which is, and which was, and which is to come. And that is God our Father. That is the Ancient of Days. That is God. I don't know, that is Jehovah. That is a restatement of Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 33 when he would comfort the people of the Lord with these words. The eternal God, which is, which was, and which is to come, the eternal God is thy refuge, and underneath are the everlasting arms. Amen. That is how Moses would write it. Moses was moved by the Spirit of God, and John was moved by the Spirit of God. So the believers are being encouraged with God's eternal nature. The source of grace and peace is God Himself, the eternal God, without whom there can be neither in your life, if God the Father doesn't give it. And that expression, who was and is and is to come, is different from every other person and every other thing that you ever put any of your trust or confidence in. 
Companies change and it alters our jobs. Health changes and it off, and it alters our vitality. Relationships change and it alters our confidence in others, but not God. Grace and peace from Him is a constant because He is constant and never changes. Everything else is temporal and very unstable in comparison. Grace and peace from this eternal, unchangeable being is a glorious salutation indeed. I hope that we'll all think about how we address each other and how we write each other. You know, don't be afraid of someone thinking that you're trying to sound apostolic if you open up an email by saying grace to you and peace. Because what a blessing you're calling down from heaven. And if you want to elaborate like John did and like the apostles did over and over, was that a waste of space in the Bible to have all the epistles start off with the same kind of salutation? Never. It shows us something. But here, it's grace and peace from Him, that is God our Father, which is and which was and which is to come. So His eternal nature is what's pointed out to us that grace and peace from Him will never change. The only one that changes is us. He does not. And others will change around us. And our nation will change. And our employers will change. And our health will change. And our finances will change, but not Him. And from the seven spirits which are before His throne. The seven spirits which are before the throne of God. Let's find them also in three one. And unto the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things saith he that hath the seven spirits of God. Now who is in the red writing in Revelation 2 and 3? It's the Lord Jesus Christ. So here we read that Jesus Christ had the seven spirits of God. 4-5. In this great description of the throne of God, before the Lord Jesus Christ arrives, after His ascension in chapter 5, we read in verse 5 of chapter 4, And out of the throne proceeded lightnings and thunderings and voices. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. In chapter 5 and verse 6, And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne and of the four beasts, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb, as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. Some think that there are angels or other created spirits that are here. No, no, and no. And now let me prove it without taking too long. Seven is a number in the Bible of completeness and of perfection. Seven is a rather popular number in the book of Revelation. I mean, I'm not going to list all the sevens that are in the book of Revelation, but there's many there. And there are seven churches being addressed. And so that this is the only place where you read about the seven spirits of God like this, except symbolically you can find the seven also in Zechariah chapter 3 and Zechariah chapter 4, where there are seven seven candles burning before the Lord, very much like what we saw in 4-5 about the seven candles. Some think they're angels. But now wait a minute. They're identified as a source of grace and peace, but that can only come from God. 
Only God can give grace and peace. An angel can't do that in your life. Now, God may send an angel to help you experience grace and peace in your life, but the grace and peace comes from God. John was inspired, and he was too wise to know that he could bless churches from angels. I'm going to very quickly run through some arguments. Some of them you'll think, well, obviously. Well, it's not obvious to everyone. You'd be surprised at what men come up with with seven spirits because they're so afraid of messing up the Trinity. We're not going to mess up the Trinity, but they have the seven providential spirits of God that govern the earth. And they have seven spirits that God made that are angels. No, no, no. Listed between God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, remember, there's three froms. Three ought to get your attention when I said there's a threefold from. And it's between God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, and there's only one person of the Trinity missing so far. It's not angels. No, the inspired scriptures would not have angels, which are only the servants of God in Christ and of saints, in between God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's a place of worship, and we're specifically told that angels are not to be worshipped in the Bible. Since the other two persons of the Trinity are identified, they can't be creatures in the middle, or there's an inspired neglect of the Holy Spirit and divine honor of angels. They're burning lamps. Now, angels are fiery spirits that God made, according to Hebrews 1. But the Spirit is also, when He descended upon the early church in Acts chapter 2, there were flames of fire as they appeared on their heads. They are Christ, seven eyes and seven horns, from chapter 5 and verse 6. And seven angels are not worthy to be part of Him who is God in the flesh. But who was given the Holy Spirit without measure? The Lord Jesus Christ. In John chapter 3 and verse 34, and He was given the oil. What is oil for? It's a fuel for a fire or a lamp. In Hebrews chapter 1, above all His fellows, no one got the Holy Spirit like the Lord Jesus Christ, who has seven horns and seven eyes, and before whom and with are seven lamps of fire before God's throne. If angels were meant... The word could have been used as the word angel is used throughout the book of Revelation. Though called spirits, elsewhere in the Bible, angels are nowhere in Scripture called the spirits of God. So we have seven spirits of God. These seven spirits of God are the Holy Spirit. We make this choice for far more than the fact that the word spirits is capitalized with an S. That doesn't prove anything in your King James Bible. You better be very careful of going down that road or you're going to have Nebuchadnezzar seeing Jesus of Nazareth in the fiery furnace of Babylon. Because the form of the fourth is like the Son of God is capitalized. There were not rules, distinct and established rules for capitalizing nouns and pronouns for deity back in 1611. Now while it capitalizes Son in the fiery furnace, if you go over to Isaiah 7.14 about a son being born to a virgin, and Isaiah 9.6, about a son being called the mighty God, it's not capitalized. Now, do you want to make a doctrine on capitals? Let's not go there. And we're not going there. The reasons above that I've already given as to why it's not angels leave us with only one option. It's the Spirit of God. How can such a great salutation with two persons already identified ignore Him? Let me read to you another salutation. In its fullness, like this one is a full one. Second Corinthians thirteen fourteen. The grace 
of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Ghost be with you all. Amen. So we have that by comparing Scripture. As the language is clearly of worship to God in Christ, it must be the Holy Spirit of God. He is the only one that we would worship. The angels throughout this book, whenever John tried to worship them, or anywhere else in the Bible, when men tried to worship angels, would be pulled to their feet and said, Don't worship me, worship God. And this is obviously a situation of these spirits being put between God the Father and God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. The number seven in Scripture is completeness or perfection which the Holy Spirit most certainly is by His diversity of operations and perfections in divine power. There's no limit to His power, and there's no limit to the diversity of operations. So that fits with the rest of the Bible. If you go over to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, we read there that there is one operation of the Spirit that's called the Word of Wisdom and the Word of Knowledge and Prophecy, and it just goes down through this long list, and it's called the diversities by one Spirit. The book was written to seven churches. So each church, in this view of the heavenly places, has seven spirits because the spirit is so involved in each church. Is why there's seven. It's to let you know that the, the Holy Spirit is divisible in the sense that each can have the Spirit of God in a church. And it's just a comfort to his people that there's seven, there's, wow, there's seven churches and seven spirits. That means the Holy Spirit is for us. Are you with me? That's what it, that's what it's there for. There's only one Holy Spirit. There are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. There's not nine. The Father, the Word, and seven Holy Ghosts. There's three that bear record in heaven, and those three are one. They are one God. But the Holy Spirit, for the sake of comforting the seven churches, is shown as seven spirits of God, seven flames of fire, seven eyes of Christ, seven horns of Christ, His authority, His oversight. Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. It's a picture for us. It shouldn't undo a thing in your minds about our Trinity. He is before the throne of God, not in the sense of worshiping God, but as the Spirit that God sends forth to do His work. How many times do you think you can find that in the Bible? God has sent forth His Spirit to us. He's sealed us with the Holy Spirit of promise. In the fullness of time, God sent to, uh, to them who are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts. The way that the Bible describes the Trinity operating is God the Father in heaven sending forth His Spirit to indwell us and to operate in the church. And that's why He's before the throne, ready to go. Not that He is subordinate to God. He is God, and He is with God. He is part of God. But He's the part that comes and dwells with us. And so we can pray for the Holy Spirit according to Luke eleven thirteen, and the Father will give Him to us. In John chapter 7, when... The Lord Jesus Christ explained the figure of water. He said water means the Holy Spirit because the Spirit had not yet been given. So he's given a prophecy of what would happen in Acts chapter 2. Now jump down to verse 20 so that I can just throw a few things in here about the seven spirits of God. 
can't elaborate on this at all because it's not the purpose and it's not part of the salutation. Verse 20, John has seen the Lord Jesus Christ. He heard a great voice behind him. He was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. And I trust that you're in the Spirit on this Lord's day and that you will seek to be in the Spirit every Lord's day and that you will seek to be in the Spirit every day. But being in the Spirit in the Lord's day, he heard a voice behind him, and turning he saw the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, glorified. And the Lord Jesus Christ had seven stars in his right hand, and he was walking among seven candlesticks. Those are those burning lamps we've already had reference to. And here we have them partially explained. But this is a book of prophecy, and they're not fully explained. Verse 20, the mystery of the seven stars. Now, if we weren't helped out a little bit, we wouldn't even know how to get started. The mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in my right hand and the seven golden candlesticks. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. Without elaborating on it right now, those are the pastors of the seven churches. Churches don't have angels in this respect that you can write angels and tell them that they have lost their first love. But you can write pastors and tell them that they have lost their first love and the church that they're responsible for has lost their first love. And so as we go through chapters 2 and 3 to the angel of the church at Ephesus write. Now if you want to make that a literal angel, would you tell me the address or the email address where you would send the epistle? Write and send. These are the pastors. They're in His right hand. The right hand of the Lord Jesus Christ who called them, who defends them. When the Apostle Paul had to stand before Caesar, the Lord stood with me and delivered me out of the lion. He's got His ministers in His right hand. It's a picture of comfort to the church as it's about to go into a book that's full of apocalyptic warnings of persecution and martyrdom that's going to come upon the church where the ministers, and they would have been persecuted the most, they're in the right hand of the Lord Jesus Christ. And He's walking among the seven golden candlesticks. And the seven golden candlesticks are the seven churches because it says that right here. The seven candlesticks which thou sawest are the seven churches. The candlestick does not represent the building. The candlestick doesn't represent the congregation. The candlestick represents the presence of God in the congregation. When it meets in a building. And when it doesn't meet in a building. Now can you prove, can you prove that? If you flip over to chapter 2, it says this in verse 5 to the church at Ephesus. In the last part, you know, you know the first part. Remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen, and repent and do the first works, because we want to be in love with the Lord Jesus Christ at least as much as we ever were in the most fervent period in our lives. Right. At least as much. Or else, if you don't get that first love restored, I will come unto thee quickly and will remove thy candlestick. Now, when the Lord Jesus Christ removes a candlestick from His church, it doesn't mean He tears the steeple off. It doesn't mean He burns the building down. It has nothing to do with the building. Here it is being shown separate from the church. But yet it's called the church because it's the church in a spiritual sense because it's got the Spirit within it. But I will take your candlestick away. That oil of joy and oil of gladness that is the fuel from the Holy Spirit that burns in a flame, I will remove it from your church. The people still assemble. The membership reads the same. They still sing and they still use PUs. So it's not the church literally, it's the church spiritually. 
And then let me finish what I was about to read in verse 5 and see if it doesn't help you out like it does in Genesis 3.15 when it says that the seed of the woman would bruise the serpent's head. Is that the woman bruising the serpent's head? Or does it go and say, His heel? Does it say His heel? Does that make you know that we're talking about a male descendant of the woman? Does it make you know in one verse that it's the Lord Jesus Christ and not Mary? Does it make you know that the artwork at Bob Jones University in their highly acclaimed art museum that has Mary standing on a serpent is totally incorrect theologically? Mary couldn't stand on the head of that serpent. Only He and His foot, His heel was bruised by the devil could defeat the devil. And it was Lord Jesus Christ. So we look at here. Look at verse 5. I will come unto thee quickly and will remove thy candlestick out of his place. I meant what I told you earlier that I believe and I love every single word in our King James Bible. Every single word. You say a little pronoun named his. Yes, I've got a male singular pronoun describing a candlestick at one church. It is the Holy Spirit of the living God. Right. He doesn't take away the church in its building. He doesn't take away the church in its membership. He takes away the presence of the Spirit of God so that a church continues to meet, continues to have PUs, continues to sing, continues to preach, but the blessing of the Spirit of God is out of it. That's not my lesson. So back to Revelation 1. I just had to throw that in there in case you were wondering about the seven spirits. There's more that could be said on that subject. When the spirit leaves a body, it's a dead corpse. Right. When your spirit leaves your body instantaneously, and if you've been around death, you have seen that body of clay return to clay instantly when that animating vital spirit leaves. And the Bible says that in James chapter 2, the body without the spirit is dead. A church without the spirit is the congregation of the dead. Just like Proverbs 21 verse 16 describes, they may make a lot of noise. They may be very enthusiastic about their worship, but God the Holy Spirit is gone. And it is something we ought to tremble. Because to go through the motions of being Christians and not having the Holy Spirit enable us and strengthen us and comfort us and guide us and teach us and lead us is to make it a sham. And it was the threat against the church at Ephesus that Paul had started in Acts chapter 19. When was the last time you prayed for and sought a greater filling of the Holy Spirit? He can divide Himself and divide Himself until you can have the Holy Spirit yourself blessing you from the inside out with power, strength, wisdom, and light. Amen. And the oil of gladness. That's what it's called when, it, when He was given to the Lord Jesus Christ in Hebrews chapter 1, the oil of gladness. Right. Because the fruit of the Spirit is love, Rejoice with Scripture that grace and peace are from the Spirit sent forth to give them because He is the seal of our inheritance in the presence of God and of Christ with us. We have Him who sits on the throne and we have the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember it says in Galatians 4, God sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts. Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which ye have of God, because God sent Him forth. There are those flames burning before the throne of God that are sent forth to you. Verse 5, and from Jesus Christ. Oh, here's our Savior. Here's the Word of God made flesh, distinct from the Father and the Spirit. Let it be declared boldly and believed fully. 
the man Christ Jesus is Lord and Savior, and from Jesus Christ. Before Mary had her holy child, there was no Jesus of Nazareth, only the Word of God. And gospel faith loves to confess and loves to declare agreement with the witness and the record that God has given of His Son. The Lord Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Amen. The, the eunuch said to Philip in that chariot bouncing through the desert in Acts chapter 8, See, here is water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? Philip said to him, If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. The eunuch answered with the confession we all ought to be willing to make with our lips and to back up with our lives. I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Right. I sent you in an update that I wonder how many of you read, telling you that God has given His record and His witness that His Son Jesus is His Son indeed. In 1 John chapter 5, it says in verse 6 that there were three witnesses on earth, the water, the blood, and the Spirit, that declare Jesus is the Son of God. In verse 7, there are three witnesses in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. And these three are one. And they agree in one about Jesus being the Son of God. And there are three in verse 8. The Spirit, the water, and the blood again that we partake of on earth. Do you know what all that refers to? Jesus Christ was declared by God to be His Son in the waters of baptism when John baptized Him and God's voice thundered from heaven, This is my beloved Son, and the Holy Spirit descended upon His head. That is He that came by water. How did He come by blood? When He was hanging on the cross and dripping blood for the redemption of our sins, God turned the sun off. God sent an earthquake that rent the stones so that the centurion himself in charge of the crucifixion smote His breast and said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. And the graves were opened by the power. That was His blood. And the Spirit, the Spirit blessed Jesus Christ with miracles uncountable in His life and through His apostles by the power of their ministries in the preaching of the gospel that Jesus of Nazareth was the Son of God. Those are three witnesses that God has made and you and I had better believe on His Son, Jesus. And there are three in heaven that believe that Jesus of Nazareth is the Son of God. And when we come to this table, we are taking up a cup of wine to remember the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ when the sun, 93 million miles from this earth, that can give you a sunburn and burn out the retinas of your eyes, was blacked out for the Lord Jesus Christ. We remember it right there. That is a witness of blood in the earth right now about Jesus of Nazareth. Every time we're baptized, we are baptized in a picture of burial and resurrection, just like the Lord Jesus Christ who came out of the ground. You are reading a set of scriptures that were inspired by the Holy Spirit, and I hope your pastor is preaching by the Holy Spirit. Right. And so there are three witnesses. The preaching, of the, the preaching by the Holy Spirit of the Word of God, which is the Holy Spirit's book, the Lord's Supper, and baptism that are three witnesses on earth in 1 John 5, 8. Now those three verses that gave you trouble in the past, are they giving you any trouble right now? And this is the faith that overcomes the world, even our faith. And our faith is this, 1 John 5, 5, He that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God. And verse 1 tells us that you will never believe that Jesus is the Son of God without first having been born again. All those are the witnesses that Jesus is the Son of God. God gave a record about His Son. Do you believe the record? Don't just tell me you believe it. Are we going to live it? it. 
and from Jesus Christ. You say, is all that in there? Oh, more than that's in there. More than that's in there. And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness. This descriptive statement is given to comfort believers in the total truth of the gospel. Everyone else in this world lies to you. Our government lies to you. Every other religion lies to you. Doctors lie to you. Financial planners lie to you. Children, spouses, and parents lie to you from time to time. He is the faithful witness. He always told the truth. Do you know that we started out this morning with Romans 15, where it says that Jesus Christ was a minister of the circumcision for the truth of God. Because He's the faithful witness. He bore record of Himself, and the Pharisees came to Him and said, You're bearing record of yourself. That I'm bearing record of myself, and my record is true. Oh, because He was the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the faithful witness. He's the only faithful apostle. The best apostles we can find in the Bible had their sins and faults. Look at Peter, but not the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the apostle of our profession. The priests, look at Aaron. He made a golden calf. The greatest priest Israel ever had made a golden calf, but not the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the faithful apostle and high priest of our profession. When he was on trial for his life, he witnessed a good confession. Did he compromise to make peace with Pilate? Did he try to win the favor of the Roman governor knowing that he had a soft spot in that governor's heart against the Jews? No. The Bible tells us, and I read it to you opening this service from 1 Timothy 6, 13-16, that the Lord Jesus Christ witnessed a good confession to Pilate. Jesus revealed God the Father, and there's no other way that you'll ever know Him who is and who was and who is to come. You will never know that being without the Lord Jesus Christ revealing Him to you because He is the faithful witness. That's Matthew 11, verses 25 through 27. The devil lied about Job to God, but the Lord Jesus Christ always speaks the truth. And I want you to know that the Lord Jesus Christ was tempted at all points like as you are. So when He sits before God and He speaks to God about you, He is able to succor you. He is able to help you. And He is able to have sympathy with you. Because He can be touched with the feeling of your infirmities. And He is faithful to declare the truth about your difficulty in living for God in this world. Because He's a faithful witness. Yes. Whether 12 years of age or 33, Jesus always declared the truth of God without fear or compromise, no matter what it would cost Him. He is the faithful witness. And so these saints that were going to undergo martyrdom could lay their belief and confidence in the gospel because Jesus never lies. He cannot lie. It is impossible for Him to lie. And it says that. And you should fully trust Him. I need to move on. And from Jesus Christ who is the faithful witness and He's the first begotten of the dead. The Lord Jesus Christ is the first one to be raised from the dead that didn't have to die again. Do you know that everybody that was raised from the dead in the Bible had to die again? How's that good news? How'd you like the first time? you got to do it again. The Lord Jesus Christ is the first begotten from the dead. He's the first one that raised Himself from the dead by His own power. He's the first one to raise Himself from the dead and go straight in the presence of God and sit there. And He's the first fruits of them that slept. That makes Him the first begotten because the harvest is going to follow. This verse, this phrase, this descriptive statement is given to comfort believers against death in the comfort of the resurrection. 
We've had two comforts given to us so far. You can believe the gospel because Jesus is a faithful witness. You don't have to fear death because Jesus is the first begotten of the dead. And if He rose from the dead, everyone tied to Him by the everlasting covenant will rise from the dead. You can mock death with the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, more can be said about that. But He's also the Prince of the kings of the earth. This descriptive statement is given to comfort believers by what follows in this book, which is the political might of empires against the church and the military might of empires against the church. He is the prince of the kings of the earth. If you if you had to read Revelation and it was applying to you, would this salutation help out just a little bit? Praise the Lord. He's the prince of the kings of the earth. It's to comfort believers by political and military might of the Lord Jesus Christ. What glorious comfort for those who worry about political or military world events. Do you worry about those events? Jesus is the prince of the kings of the earth. And we have no right in comparison to our fathers in the faith to worry about what's going on in our world because it doesn't touch us like it touched them. This isn't the only occurrence in this book that he's called the Prince of the Kings of the Earth. He's called the King of Kings and Lord of Lords two other times in this book. And I already read 1 Timothy to you. Here ends the first sentence of the salutation. It has been grace and peace from three. Grace and peace from Him who is and was and is to come and from the seven spirits of God before His throne and from the Lord Jesus Christ. And about the Lord Jesus Christ, He's the faithful witness, so you can believe everything He says in the Bible, including every promise. He is the first begotten of the dead, so you don't have to fear dying. And He's the Prince of the kings of the earth, no matter what the nations or the military of any nation may do against you. He's the Prince of them all. Now that's, That's not bad for one sentence to get us rolling into a salutation, is it? And more could be said, and more has been said, and more has been thought. And I thank the Lord for that, but will you please... Suffer me a little longer to speak on behalf of my Savior. Amen. There's a period there. And now it's the way that we all should respond when we think about what Jesus Christ is and what He's done for us. We ought to turn it around and give back to Him, unto Him. Unto Him that loved us. Here begins the second sentence of the salutation. It's our responsive praise to Jesus Christ. And it's to elicit from you delight in Jesus Christ as the lover of your souls. It is mentioned first because you should know from the testimony of Scripture and from this salutation, my beloved brethren in the seven churches of Asia, you should know that no matter what happens to you, Jesus Christ, who is the Prince of the kings of the earth, who is the first begotten of the dead, who is the faithful witness, who is... By association with the Word of God, part of the Godhead, the lover of your soul who loved us. Our relationship with Jesus Christ is far greater than political. We didn't get an executive pardon. Our relationship with Jesus Christ is far greater than judicial. We didn't get just a legal justification. Our relationship with Jesus Christ is far greater than economic. We got far more than a redemptive ransom paid for us. Our relationship with Jesus Christ is far greater than religious. He is much more to us than a sanctifying offering. 
Our relationship with Jesus Christ is far greater than relational. A peaceful mediator that made an atonement so that we could be at one again with God. It's far more than that. It is rather affectionate, personal, and familial. Because we were adopted as the beloved children of the living God. Unto Him that loved us. Unto Him that loved us. Greater love hath no man that a man would lay down his life for his friends. But are you going to tell me that you were the friend of Jesus when He laid down His life for you? God commendeth His love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And if, while we were enemies, we were justified to God by the death of His Son, how much more shall we be saved by His life? Unto Him that loved us and washed us from our sins in His own body. This descriptive statement is given to elicit your delight in Jesus Christ as the Savior from sins. By nature, you are so defiled, filthy, polluted, and spotted that it cannot be fully described. Because only the infinitely holy God can properly sense and see the offense of our sins. By nature, you are so deceitful, evil, sinful, and wicked that it cannot be fully written. You are dirty. You are polluted. Isaiah, in the presence of that holy God, immediately realized the things that had come out of his lips condemned him. Because our speech is filthy, foolish, and wasteful so much of the time. Sarcastic, painful, and hurting to others. Lord, forgive us. Washing is a cleansing action of taking a dirty thing and making it clean for noble use again. Look at these words. The cleansing here is described for us. It's not for the world. It's for us. Who's the us? It's the writer John who was an apostle and the members of seven churches of the Lord Jesus Christ who washed us from our sins. You've been freed from sins once and forever. You can't blame anyone else for those sins because they're your sins. As John would say, our sins. In a fountain has been created by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ that is deep. It's enough to cover all your sins. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. It's the offense of our sins and it's hard to define for it takes an infinitely holy God to know how bad our sins are. But as one of our songs tells us, if you want to see how bad sin is, then look what God had to do to His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, on the cross of Calvary. It says that we were washed from our sins. We were thrust deep in that fountain. We were not just painted or touched up from sins. We were thrust deep to be fully washed. It was His blood, the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, that one that was described as part of the Godhead in His divine nature, that one that was described as the faithful witness, the first begotten of the dead, the prince of the kings of the earth. It was His blood. Without blemish or any spot. It was his own blood. He personally gave his own life for his sheep. Not a sheep's life for the sheep. And it was his own blood. He had to die, my brethren, because the life of the flesh is in the blood. For the wages of sin is death. And it's always death. And he died for us and shed his blood. Now I get to what I want to take up. And hath made us kings and priests. Unto God and his Father. Unbelievable. Amen. Unbelievable. This descriptive statement is given to elicit delight in Christ for your exalted position. 
Do you grasp that God's purpose in Christ's love has done great things for you? What can we say? We were once evil criminals. Now we're kings? We were once vile sinners. Now we're priests? We're Gentiles. A royal priesthood? Kings and priests. Solomon was no priest. And Zadok, his glorious priest, was no king. Each of you are better than them both. And what I started out with this morning, I will soon end, but I want to remind you, no matter how lowly you think of yourself, no matter how lonely your origins, no matter how lonely your family tree, no matter how lonely, lowly your income, none of that matters at all. You are a king and a priest of Him who is and was and is to come. And from the seven spirit and, and of the seven spirits that are before His throne and of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's made, he's made us kings and priests. Jesus, by His life and His death and His resurrection, has made us kings. It is spoken of two other places in this book, in chapter 5 and in chapter 20. Jesus said His kingdom was not of this world, so make sure that you're spiritually minded as you think about being a king. Kings reign, and so do we reign. We reign in life by one. Romans chapter 5 and verse 17. We reign over sin and death. Death is called the king of terrors in the book of Job, but we make fun of death. O oh, death, where is thy sting? O oh, grave, where is thy victory? How's that for being a king? Amen. You can take the king of terrors and laugh at terror. You're kings. Satan is a cruel king against us. He's called a king. Revelation chapter 9. He's called a priest throughout the New Testament. The prince. He's called a prince, not a priest. The prince. The prince of the power of the air. He's called a king in Revelation chapter 9, and yet you're going to judge him. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 3. Know ye not that we shall judge angels. Now which angels do you think you're going to judge? The holy and the elect angels? Wrong. Guess again, there's only one left. The fallen angels, and it's going to be the devil himself. Right. The, 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 the book of Romans is going to get us to chapter 16 where the Apostle Paul is going to tell the Romans that you are soon going to trample Satan under your feet. Amen. Oh, you're a king. And if you resist the devil today, before this sun sets, he will flee from you because he knows the authority you have through the Lord Jesus Christ. His name is Apollyon Nabadon and he's a king. But he's a king that's going to be destroyed because our Savior is King of kings. Amen. And he's made us kings. Kings have a kingdom, and we have one as well. I give unto you a kingdom, the Lord Jesus Christ said. Kings have thrones. Look at chapter 3 and verse 21. The Lord Jesus Christ said, after that verse that the Arminians, Calvinists, and everyone else has so foolishly abused... It says in Revelation 3.21, To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and am set down with my Father in his throne. Now if Jesus Christ is sitting in the throne's Father, and you're going to sit in Jesus Christ's throne, how close are you going to be to the Father? 
by the pictures that God wants to give us in the book of Revelation. You're going to be sitting in the throne of God because you're a king and a priest unto God and His Father. That is the Lord Jesus Christ. Kings have great and vast possessions. So no wonder 1 Corinthians 3.21 says this in one of the shortest sentences of the Bible. All things are yours. This is just a salutation. What if we ever studied the book of Revelation? Unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and hath made us kings and priests unto God and his Father. Kings have numerous powerful wise servants and huge militaries at their disposal. So do we have the hosts of the living God, the angels that were created to be our servants. You're a king, Frank. Don't you whine to me about anything or anyone else. I'm just poor Frank. I'll I'll make it up to you afterwards. Kings have white horses. So guess what you find in Revelation chapter 19? That there are men clothed in white linen riding upon white horses behind the Lord Jesus Christ. When it says that we're joint heirs with Christ, do you think that it's trying to mislead you? If he's got a white horse, do you think you're going to get a brown one? You're going to have a white one. Kings inherit great wealth and we're joint heirs with Christ. Kings' children are raised up to be princes. And Psalm 45, which I've taught to you several times over the last 12 years, said, forget your fathers because your children are going to be princes in a real kingdom, a kingdom that endures forever and shall not be given to another people. Daniel chapter 2. Jesus has raised us up and will raise us up to sit with Him and show us the riches of glory in all ages to come. Ephesians chapter 2. He's made us kings. He just didn't save us. There's a whole lot more than not going to hell. We are the children of the living God. That was the first message. We're kings and priests unto that God. This is, that is the second message. And he's made us priests. This concept is is attached to the kingship here and in chapter 5 and in chapter 20. He's made us kings and priests. A priest is absolutely essential to have peace with God because you need someone between God and you to mediate between the two of you to bring you at one again, which is atonement. Job knew that, and Job said, I wish there was a daysman that could stand between God and me and put one hand on God and one hand on me and make peace between the two of us. A A priest is absolutely essential. Called a daysman in Job. Called a mediator in 1 Timothy 2.5. From Melchizedek, the priest of the Most High God, to Aaron, the first and great high priest of Jehovah, to Joshua, the high priest of Jehovah under Zerubbabel, when the Jews returned from Babylon, priests of the Most High God were glorious men, described in the Bible. Israel's high priest could only enter God's symbolic presence once a year, and then he could only do it with blood for the sins of himself and the sins of his people. Israel was a kingdom of priests according to Exodus 19.6, but Old Testament terms are very inferior to what we're finding here in the New Testament. Priests confess sins and obtain God's forgiveness as you can easily do. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. How's that for being a priest? God is faithful and just that when you come before Him in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ... 
the price that's been fully paid already by Him, which we're about to remember, is recalled by the God of heaven in great faithfulness to His Son, cleanses us from all unrighteousness. You are a priest. Priests offer sacrifices acceptable to God as you do. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. Oh, there's a... You can present sacrifices. You're a priest. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. First Peter chapter 2, which I read to you this morning, about Peter addressing the Jews as being a chosen generation and a royal priesthood. It says about them... That's what you get for using. There it is. Boy, when you're online all the time and you can't find it in your Bible. First Peter 2 5. Forgive me. Ye also, as lively stones, are built up a spiritual house and holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ, who hath made us kings and priests unto God and his Father. Right. Offering up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. Do any of you love Handel's Messiah when it gets to Malachi chapter 3? And he shall purify the sons of Levi that they may offer a sacrifice and offerings in righteousness? Who is that? It's you and me. Because that's talking about John the Baptist and Jesus Christ. Do you know what John the Baptist and Jesus Christ did when they came about the Levitical priesthood? Abolished it. So what Levites are they talking about? It's a symbol that the Old Testament saints would recognize about you and me, that we are the new priesthood of God. In fact, the book of Isaiah, when it mentions Gentiles as priests, uses a capital P and a capital M for ministers of God. With a capital M, whatever was in that Hebrew was to get the attention of the translators that Gentiles were going to be great priests and great ministers of God. And God's made you kings and priests through Jesus Christ, His Son, who died for you to exalt you to that lofty position. Oh, you're saying I don't believe that about Isaiah. For those of you that are fast enough, Isaiah 61 and verse 6, But ye shall be named the priests of the Lord. That's a capital P. Men shall call you the ministers of our God. That's a capital M. Ye shall eat the riches of the Gentiles, and in their glory shall ye boast yourselves. That is a New Testament prophecy, because look at verse 1. Jesus Christ quoted verse 1 when he was in the synagogue in Nazareth in Luke chapter 4. Our position as kings and priests is unto God and Christ's Father. Let's consider it. Simply a king of a nation in this world is nothing in comparison to being a king that God has raised up and appointed. We do and will serve Jehovah God of heaven by his appointment and his authority. Now that is really being a king. Simply a priest of any worldly religion is less than nothing compared to God. A priest in this world, a priest of the Catholic Church, a priest of the Mormon Church, or their Levitical priesthood and Melchizedek priesthood and the stuff that they've made up We do now and will forever have complete, direct, and free access to God so that we can go to Him boldly. The Bible tells us, to Him, to Him, to who? The Lord Jesus Christ, unto Him that loved us and washed us from our own sins in His blood, in His own blood, and hath made us kings and priests unto God and and His Father, unto Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. 
Amen. This concludes the second half of the salutation. The Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is the object of every phrase of this great sentence, the second sentence of the salutation. For all Jesus Christ has done for us, we seek His glory in every possible way. We praise Him. We sing to Him. We adore Him. We describe His works. We believe on Him. We are baptized in His likeness. We sit at His table and remember the blood that He shed and the body that was torn. And we bring Him glory by remembering what He did. And for all Jesus Christ has done for us, we seek His total dominion in all ways forever. To Him be glory and dominion. Dominion is sovereign rule. And we give Him sovereign rule by our lips, by our lives, and by our doctrine. And we pray for His will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we seek that for Him. The salutation is so weighty, it deserves its own concluding. Amen.